Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, I want to turn us today to a theme that you've mentioned occasionally in previous episodes of this podcast and, and one that you've now developed at more length in a recent column, and that's a growing sense of alienation amongst a lot of Americans. And we should be clear here up front, this is more than just you saying that there are lots of people who don't like their choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, even though that, that may be a little part of this. But this piece that you've written is in some ways just as much social analysis as it is political. So why don't we do this? Before we get to how this manifests itself, why don't we talk about where you see it? Because a lot of this for you comes from your personal observations. What kinds of people are feeling this alienation, and, and are there certain precincts of society that are uh, more resistant to it? Yeah, Um well, I wrote that column based on autopsy and when I was at Hillsdale in southern Michigan. And then I did a little lecture tour of rural California, places like rural San Luis Obispo County, Ventura. Uh, and then, of course, I was speaking to some farming groups in Fresno County and then where I live on a farm. And I guess I would sum it all up as saying the people who are the most alienated that talk about their guns being taken away, obviously, and the Supreme Court. Um, are males, they tend to be more white and older, but also a lot of females that are worried about uh, abortion, but in the other sense of they don't like it. And then religion, they tend to be more religious. And then I have a lot of people I went to high school who are Mexican-American, and they're all voting for Trump, which I think is a minority of that uh, population, that community, but it's nevertheless... And the reason they're all doing this, all these different groups, uh, they feel that they're isolated or alienated from popular culture, journalism, the trends and the trajectory in which America's headed. So let's talk about some of the defining traits here. You say in this piece that alienated Americans, and this is a quote from you, embrace a pessimistic view of the country rather than the therapeutic view shared by most Americans, close quote. So, uh, Victor, there are people uh, amongst the non-alienated who we could also say have a pessimistic view of America insofar as they view it as fundamentally tainted, maybe because mm-hmm. of racism or capitalism, sex, take your pick. Yeah. But in this instance, you're, you're talking about a, a different kind of pessimism amongst this alienated group, yeah. right? Yeah, I think they feel that the logic by which they run their own lives and businesses is timeless and for the ages, and the country no longer follows it. So if a guy has a 7-Eleven business or he's an independent trucker or he's a small farmer, he knows he can't borrow 140% of his equity or something like he sees happening on the national level. Or he understands that he can't treat people in his business as daily interaction by their tribe, in other words, that race is essential rather than incidental to their personas. Or when he looks at popular culture, he knows that, um, I was just looking at a story about Jennifer Lopez performing in Florida for Hillary Clinton. Forty years ago, we would have called that, you know, burlesque. It would have come out of the Tenderloin in San Francisco. So they, they see stuff like that and they say, you know, in my own life, I just can't do that stuff. And things wouldn't work if everybody were to do that. And the country now has embraced 
an alternate worldview that's not sustainable culturally, politically, socially, financially, economically. And they look at entitlements. They look at um, Social Security. And, you know, three nights ago I, I was talking to this woman I, I know very well at Walmart in Salma, and she's second-generation Mexican-American. She said, you know, you, you never believe me when I keep telling you that people come in here with new Camrys and and uh, Accords and <laughs> and they have DBT, VB, you know, um, electric EBT cards and WIC cards and all this stuff. And who's going to pay for it? And just as she said that, I looked out the window and a woman walked in with a Mercedes and came into our area. And she said, "Since she's another one." And mm. it's it's it doesn't matter whether it's accurate or not. There's just people who believe that that. The system is not going to have enough resources for the number of people who want them. The pensions, uh, debt. Uh, people don't feel that if you put money in the bank, that was the old idea of being thrifty and you're, you played by the rules, you're going to get zero interest. And then some financial guru says you're an idiot for saving money and putting it in a passbook. You should do X, Y, and Z. And this American, this alienated American, says, oh, wait, 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 wait. My dad, my grandfather, we always said, you know, save money and get 4% in your passbook or take it to the savings and loan and get 5 and so the rules have just been, and then they look at, you know, health care and they think everybody's worried about not having coverage. But as I was saying last time, when I have been into these doctor's offices because of a recent accident, people are not using their health care. They're either paying cash or they're not going to the doctor because um, they don't feel that they could ever pay the yearly deductible of three to $5,000. So their attitude is, I'm just not going to go to the doctor because I'll have to pay for it, and then I'll just use it if I, you know, I get a heart attack or something. But otherwise, I'm just going to just go to a doctor I like and pay cash or not go at all. So it's had the opposite effect of excluding people from the system. So all of these things are getting bewildered, and they look at uh, Colin Kaepernick and not standing, or they look at Beyonce at the Super Bowl, and they say, you know, I just can't relate to all that stuff. It's not race. It's not... Uh, age it's just the messaging is I, I guess I would sum it up from what I can distill is if everybody doesn't like the system so much then why why are they so wealthy or why are they content to be here or what is it about the United States that draws immigrants in or makes people have such opportunity and why therefore do they hate it so much or at least they don't contribute to it or they don't build it, or they don't invest in it. And so I think that's the problem. And I don't think it's the majority. I think it's about 45%. But it, it suggests to me that Trump was a, brilliantly saw that. And where, so he got on trade, he got on immigration, he got on outsourcing, America great, and all the other candidates and the elite said, yeah, what an idiot. And yet they ended up being more like Trump than Trump like was like them. Yeah. Uh, to that point, there's a there's a passage here in this piece that I have to get you to expand on considering the political dimension here. You wrote that to the extent that Trump wins sympathy among estranged Americans, it's largely because he represents the nihilistic choice. Explain that. Yeah, I think a lot of people at this point just want to be heard, and they like the idea that uh, they can go to a Trump rally and yell, or they, can, they like the idea that Trump – 
will say anything, is capable of saying anything at any time, and that makes people enraged. So a lot of his attraction is that if they happen to go through the, a major network or they're driving and they listen to a public NPR, not that they do, but if, when, to the extent they come into the mainstream media and these people are outraged, uh, when Obama goes around the country and says that Trump represents an existential global threat, they like that. And they think, you know what, it's time you heard uh, people that what they think of you people. And uh, I think it's kind of a way of saying, you know, we don't have your power. We didn't go to Yale. We're not lawyers. We don't get Botox and go on TV. But you know what? It's time for you to hear that people don't like you. And they don't like what you represent. And they don't like what you do. And that's a lot of his, his attraction. He's sort of getting back at, at people. And so um, he kind of created his own paradox because he he was he won the nomination on being crude and and as i said edgy and then he realized that he couldn't do that to pick up 51% of the population so he's kind of toned it back now but and you can see how he struggles with it when the other day he said oh i have to be nice trump can't say this trump can't say that and the crowd loved it you know but he was kind of making fun of the, his own paradox there's in this piece a, a pretty bleak passage where you say that the disengaged Americans' own existential business is survival. What do you mean by that? Well, I think they, they look at the world around them, and I'm talking about the middle class, and they said, you know, I don't qualify for any subsidy. I don't qualify for an all. I make, you know, a family of six or five, we, we make 130 or 140,000, we got a good job, and but we live in an expensive state. I'm just being a hypothetical now, and they think, I don't get an Obamacare subsidy. The thing went up, you know, 30%. Uh, my kids want to go to college, but they don't fit any of the rubrics that the universities want to invest in and subsidize. So I, I would like to, I like my son to, to apply here, or my daughter for this type of job, but there's no special consideration given. So I lack the, the pull, the influence of the old boy network of the rich, the legacy network, the Harvard, the kind of stuff that we saw a glimpse in with the Podesta and, and Colin, Colin Powell emails. But I, I don't have the romance of the poor or I'm not of the particular tribe that allows me to have affirmative action or set aside. I'm just this, the kind of amorphous people that in between that nobody really likes and nobody really wants to help. And yet I get up every morning and go work. And I do this and I can't – and they turn on the Ferguson or they turn on uh, Baltimore. And they say, I can't do that. I, I, I can't – I'd have to get, in the, get to work the next morning. I couldn't afford to do that. Or when they – Listen to Colin Powell name drop the Hamptons or the uh, Bohemian Grove. That's just a world. I, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know that world. And they, and they read about all this stuff. So they feel they're in between and they're ignored and they're shrinking. And I think they're right. I think we're becoming a pyramidal society of an elite on top and a subsidized other on the bottom. And these guys in the middle feel that they're threatened that's why you hear I, I try to listen to talk radio not because i necessarily enjoy it just for columns to write about and i uh, i was driving home today and i listened to about six of them and they all say the same thing it's i don't know if they're on cue or what but they all say this is the election of the century our last chance last chance and they feel that if they don't get a spokesman the the cosmic forces are aligning against them for good 
You identify a dynamic in this piece that a lot of our listeners will probably recognize from their lived experience. I know I do. Um, about political correctness. And, and you paint a picture here amongst the alienated of people who don't like it but who as a functional matter see their primary responsibility not so much as combating it but as evading it. Te- tease that out for us. Yeah, I, I was talking to a couple of friends of my son and he's a teacher and they were basically saying there's about nine things you can't say even inadvertently or you're going to lose everything. And they meant by that your house, your job, your income. And there's certain things you can't say or do that were considered normal just 40 years ago. And I'm not talking about racism or sexism. I'm talking about what falls under the category of microaggression or uh, that kind of university thought crime. And I know that being in academia now at a research institute, there are certain things I have to be very careful about. I try to be very careful. And uh, what I mean by that is, Troy, uh, if I were a uncouth person and I wanted to make fun of Christians or Mormons or uh, abortion restrictionists or, or any of those people, I could do it very easily and nothing. I would have no consequences whatsoever. And I'll go one step further. There will be no consequences for uh, Donna Brazil other than leaving her CNN, which she had to leave anyway, for saying she helped her rig a debate. She's not going to lose the DNC chairmanship over that. And John Podesta is not going to lose his job because he was a clearinghouse for uh, talk about being needy Latinos or making fun of African-American names. That's not that's okay. So what the, the, this estranged person says is political correctness is not a process to make sure that we treat each other equitably. It's a rigged game in which there's people who are minorities and women and uh, supposedly disadvantaged groups, and they can say anything and there's no consequences. And then there's another group who are leftists, and it's like buying a life insurance policy. They are loud about their progressivism, and then that means... That, that insurance policy says if you slip up and say something uncouth of the sort that is found in the Podesta archive, there's no consequences because you, you, that was a, that's not a, a window into your heart, a glimpse into your soul. It's just a, it's just a gaffe. Whereas if anybody else says that, um, you know, it, you're all through. So, you know, it, when Michelle Obama said it's a downright mean country, or she said, I've never been proud of it till Barack was nominated. Who, who cared? That was contextual. When Nancy Reagan years ago said, you know, I, I, she came into a snowy area and she saw a bunch of white faces. She goes, look at all the white people. Or It's good to see the white. That was almost, that was terrible. So I think that's what people are reacting against. Not political correctness per se, but the distortions and the warping of it, that it's not consistent. To that point, here's the last thing I'll ask you. The word you're using here throughout this column, alienation, usually interpreted as a negative, right? If you hear that someone is alienated, the instinct is supposed to be to bring them back to the fold. But how much are these patterns that you're identifying maybe even accelerated by the fact that the culture these Americans are alienated from is one that increasingly seems like it would rather not have them on board anyway? Yeah, I don't think – 
I mean, you can see extreme manifestations when people kind of go haywire, like the Bundy clan that are pretty not sympathetic characters. But um, you can get the idea that the, the the larger culture just wants to, I don't know. I mean, they. if I'm reading some of these columns about Trump, um, uh, I read uh, some of the columns, you know, it's not just enough to defeat Trump. We have to obliterate him. We have to destroy the Republican Party. We've got an L.A. Times guy days twit, twitted, we got to kill him uh, or he should be dead. So you get the impression there's a lot of anger at these people that they're sort of a, a road bump into a highway, a utopian highway, a trajectory into peace and love and perpetual uh, kindness. And that if you would just get rid of them or they would just disappear, they'd go back to Idaho or they'd go into southern Utah, wherever they go, just get out of our way and let us do this. But uh, And that that's kind of scary. And so these people sense that, that people really can most of America can can live without the second amendment they feel and they'll they do things most people can live without farming they think most people can live without miners they think most people can live without frackers they think and the people in, engaged in these productive muscular entrepreneurial activities feel you know gosh we're the guys that fuel Palo Alto we're the guys that fuel the upper west side and yet we're just thought that were superfluous so that's where that a lot of that anger is and it's kind of manifested manifested now into a realization that they're no longer the majority i'm not talking about race i'm talking about mostly where you live and what type of activity you you you're, you're working in they feel that they're not the majority anymore and the people don't like them and their attitude instead of trying to appease it is sort of screw you I could care less. It, it, I, I kind of got some of the um, influence because this happened in Athens in the 4th century BC after the Peloponnesian War. The democracy, which had been re, really responsible for the recklessness that lost Athens the war, became doubled down. So they started not just paying people to go to the theater, but paying people to vote. They went after wealthy people. And every lawsuit you read in the 4th century Athenian corpus of uh, forensic speeches is all about he has more money than he's letting on let's get his inheritance etc and so there was a whole group of philosophers plato one later aristotle um that dropped out so to speak and when you read them euripides has a, a archetype in the ion um another play and they just don't participate in the democracy they're critics they're kind of irrelevant every once in a while when they try to stage a coup or something it's it's carnival you know it doesn't work very well and but they're the voice that's actually survives from democratic athens the antithesis to it and they just completely drop out they don't want to participate in the civic life of athens anymore and, I, and that's i think what the dangers of democracy that it creates this sort of mob-like culture and everybody has to be part of it. And, and if you feel it's headed in the wrong direction, it's not enough to be in the minority. You have to be destroyed psychologically or something. And I, I see that a little bit. I don't want to be a wounded fawn, but I see some of the never Trump um, rhetoric that I'm reading. So if I read some things that have been written lately by Gabriel Schoenfeld and New York Daily News, or Robert Kagan in the Washington Post, or David Frum. Um, the, the theme is 
you people should be ashamed of yourself. You have to apologize. We don't know if we'll ever take you back in the Republican Party. And it's that same idea that how could you, I think I'm quoting directly, how could anybody in New York ever align themselves with somebody like these Trump people? And I just don't think that's a good thing to do because I think we're coming to a crisis that the next president's not going to be able to, uni whoever it is, is not going to be able to unify the country after this election very easily. And the Republican Party is going to see a mini civil war. I think that's inevitable. Um, so I, I'm not, and I wish it wouldn't happen. So one of the things I, I try to do is when I discuss these issues in print, even though some people really bother me, I, I don't know if that's cowardice or what, I try not to mention them by name. Because I don't want to, not be, I don't mind getting a fight with them. I'll be happy to go back and forth with them. But I just don't think it's it's helpful to say the the people I just mentioned. I'm not really angry at. I just think I just wish they wouldn't use that uh, rhetoric. And I think it's it'd be wiser if everybody toned it down a bit. But maybe that's impossible until the election's over. All right. Well, the next show will do. We'll know who that next president will be. And in the meantime, to our listeners, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.